You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. I want to start out by reminding you that you can still get a copy of my best-selling book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, by going to wealthformula.com or simply texting me at 44222 and typing Wealth Formula. Again, that's 44222 Wealth Formula. One word. Uh, I almost forgot the phone number that time. Also, if you haven't had a chance to check it out, my digital course that I'm very proud of. I mean, it is a fantastic course with a really all-star faculty. It's called Your Roadmap to Real Wealth. It's got Rich Dad Advisors, Ken McElroy, and and uh, Tom Wheelwright, and the real estate guys, and Kevin Day. I mean, all these guys, tremendous bodies of knowledge there that are just laying it out, telling you and giving you the roadmap uh, to real wealth. And so if you want to take it to the next level, I highly encourage you to check it out. You can check it out at wealthformularoadmap.com. As for today's show, you know, I'm proud to say that I have overcome a major handicap to become a successful entrepreneur. It has taken me 33 years to figure out how to get past this obstacle, but I did it. And I'm proud of the fact because very few people with this fate in life become successful business people, and even fewer become successful investors. What was the handicap, you ask? Well, you see, I was born an A student. I got good grades in high school and college and graduated at the top of my medical school class, and I even got into one of the best neurosurgical training programs in the world. That's not easy. Did you know that more people become professional athletes every year than neurosurgeons? Yes, indeed, I reveled in my academic success. I pumped out scholarly papers and book chapters like there was no tomorrow. In fact, I remember telling my dad one time that I was published in a journal called Neurosurgery, two months in a row. And you know what he said? He said, congratulations, and he seemed genuinely excited. And then he said, how much do they pay you for for that anyway? Well, of course, they paid me nothing. I mean... Silly dad, I thought, he just doesn't get it. You know, he's too busy being a slumlord to understand my world. You know, after all, what I'm doing is important. It's meaningful. It's not just about money. I thrived on academic achievement and being recognized as smart and important. And that was really my currency. And for those who are good at school and who constantly get positive feedback... You know what I'm talking about. It's addictive, right? The accolades create a feedback loop. And with every accomplishment, award, title, it's like a dopamine hit, you know, like any addict. And it makes it harder and harder to get outside of your own world. That's why I call being an A student a handicap to becoming an entrepreneur because I really think it is. A students don't get to experience failure. In fact, they become so accustomed to performing well in school that they're often unable to function without someone telling them what to do. And the idea of going into free fall as an entrepreneur absolutely terrifies them. Don't believe me? Well, think of the smartest people that you know that in high school, right? The person, the people that were like, you know, total whizzes and geniuses and 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 what are they doing today? Well, they're probably really successful. 
right? I mean, certainly in my class, there was people who were smarter than me, these complete wizards. And, you know, they're not more successful than me monetarily by any means. They they may have become professors, etc. But none of them became entrepreneurs. And um, I don't know, maybe that's your experience as well. What did the smartest people in your high school class end up doing? You know, most entrepreneurs come from the school of hard knocks, which is a very different place. You know, life doesn't hand them an easy out, you know, like being a good student and patted on the back. Most of them weren't particularly good students. They had to wing it and develop the ability to improvise and deal with failure. And that's the thing, that that quality, uh, the ability to improvise and to deal with failure also happens to be the hallmark of a successful entrepreneur. So they've been building that muscle all along. And that is the key to being a successful entrepreneur. That also happens to be a good way to describe my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast today. And so when we come back, we'll hear from Kevin Bupp. Welcome back to the show. And today my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Kevin Bupp, who is the host of Real Estate Investing for Cash Flow Podcast and the Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. I wonder what that one's about. Well, anyway, for over 13 years, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast has been investing and consulting on real estate. He has completed over $40 million in real estate transaction. These days, his focus is in the mobile home park uh, space, and he is the CEO of Sunrise Capital Investors. Kevin Bupp, welcome, Kevin. Oh, thanks, Buck. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, I need to update some of those statistics. Um, uh, I think it's been about five years. I've been at this now about about uh, 18 or 19 years. And uh, that number of transactions has actually gone up since I, I put that number okay. there on my, uh, on my bio. So in any event, um, you just basically reminded me that I need to update it. <laughs> yeah, there you, I hear you, man. It's like uh, I've constantly got that going with the site. I remember, you know, I had some mention of Robert Kiyosaki on my website some time ago. And it was saying that uh, I had not met Robert Kiyosaki before, but then, and then, and then a year later, somebody said, Hey, you did meet Robert Kiyosaki about a month, a year ago. You had him on your show, right? And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's true. (laughs) So it's hard to keep up with it, especially when you're all over the place in this. But anyway, um, so Kevin, tell us about yourself. You started out, you know, at a pretty young age uh, as an industrious guy from the beginning, right? Yeah, you know, I did. I think I think uh, I didn't know what the term entrepreneur really meant at a really young age, but I, I think I always had it ingrained in me to just, you know, kind of push forth and 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 create my own money, even at a very young age. I mean, from mowing grasses and shoveling snow, shove, you know, shoveling driveways in my neighborhood to as soon as I was old enough to get a paper out, which was like so exciting because you could be 12 years old and get a paper out and actually make pretty good money at that age. Uh, so I, I did that. I had a paper out for a number of years and. Uh, I started installing car stereos in my brother's car. He was six years older than me, and all of his friends were into like loud car stereo systems. And I, my dad taught me the electronics and uh, the installation side of that business. Wow. So I was doing that in my parents' garage when I was like 14 or 15 years old. I wasn't even old enough to drive yet, but was installing 
car stereo systems in their cars, making money on the side because I wasn't old enough to really have a job at that point. So I did whatever I could, hustled to to make my own money so I could you know buy all the cool things I wanted, you know, motorcycles and bikes and all that kind of fun stuff that kids want. Um, and so, again, entrepreneur was not a word that was really ingrained in me, but I knew I wanted to, to make my own way and create my own path. And so uh, in any event, uh, that continued on throughout high school and then um, – I, I have to tell you, Buck, I wasn't the, the best student, and I know that's probably where you and I have a big variance because yeah. uh, you were an incredible student. So I was slightly different. I didn't really enjoy school too much, um, and uh, I just wanted to make money, but I, I didn't know what that meant yet at that point in time. But I got very lucky after graduating high school. I went off to college and um, got introduced uh, my, my freshman year um, to a gentleman by the name of David that um, was dating – the mom of the girl that I was dating at that point in time. So basically my, my girlfriend's mom's boyfriend. Oh, um, and David was a local real estate investor um, in Pennsylvania where I grew up and uh, owned a good number of multifamily uh, properties, uh, smaller multifamily properties and lots of single family homes and was really into long-term cash flow. And um, Dave and I became pretty good friends. Uh, long story short, he in invited me to a uh, like a three-day boot camp. I didn't have any interest in real estate, Buck, at all. I never even read a book on it, but I was like, this guy has an interest in me for some reason or another. Yeah. And he seems like he's a pretty successful guy. He's got an incredibly nice car, lives a, li a pretty cool lifestyle. He's got some freedom. Um, don't really know what he does. I don't fully understand and comprehend that yet, but I'm going to go with him to this three-day boot camp and uh, see where it leads from there. And uh, long story short, started buying single-family homes shortly thereafter, investing in uh, single-family homes there locally, and uh, built a pretty big single-family home portfolio, and then moved into multifamily for a period of time. Um, had some challenges in 2008 with the recession, and then a couple years thereafter, got introduced to mobile home parks, which is where we're at today. So for the past uh, five and a half years, Mobile home parks has been the the primary niche that we have focused in. So that's like the ten thousand yeah. foot yeah, no, version of my background. <laughs> so I'm curious. You guess going back to this uh, this issue of entrepreneurship. Um, so were you were your parents entrepreneurs? Or were your parents not at all? Yeah. Completely the opposite. I mean, very blue collar. Very much. Uh, in fact, not even college. My my father went to like a technical school for two years. My mom was not college educated. Uh, always provided really well for us. I mean, we grew up in uh, middle suburbia. Always lived in nice neighborhoods. Um, you know, but just very much middle class. A good, healthy middle class family, but surely not entrepreneurial. Not even. I don't even think they probably knew what that word was. I mean, I'm, I joke when I say that, but I mean, very much get a job, get a good job. Uh, any job that would give you benefits and give you 40 hours a week to them was a good job. That's it. That's yeah. all we were really taught growing up. And so, um, but th so they didn't have a lot of extra money. They didn't, we never went without, but you know, if I wanted things, my parents never had the money to, you know, to buy me those, you know, those cool toys. Like I'd mentioned like dirt bikes and things like that, that I loved growing up. And so I was like, well, I got to do this myself and I'm not waiting around. I need to figure out how to make some money. And so that's kind of what happened. I was pressured by myself into creating my own path. Yeah. And that's interesting too, because, you know, you, you, you were talking about how you didn't really know what an entrepreneur was. I actually didn't really know what an entrepreneur was either, even though, I mean, I was just down in, you know, just, getting good grades and I was in prep school, but I didn't really know what an entrepreneur was. So, but it's how, how do you think that, uh, I'm curious, um, uh, because I think one of the challenges that you have as a, as an A student is it's very difficult to become an entrepreneur because you constantly have this feedback of success when, when somebody's telling you what to do and you're doing it right and you're getting A's and they pat you on the back. That's a Pavlovian feedback loop that's very powerful mm -hmm. and you don't want to break away from that and try to become an entrepreneur. Do you think in some respects your, you know, lack of interest or success in school actually 
kind of help propel you along that? <laughs> That's a great observation. You know, I've, I've thought about that many times, and I, I think you're absolutely right. And um, I, I just knew that I wasn't going to be following the same path as a lot of my classmates, like in high school, going off to, to university. Like I didn't go away to a, a university, mainly because I didn't want to waste my parents' money. I was very conscious that we were blue collar, that we were you know, somewhat limited uh, with the amount of funds they had available to, to, you know, to give us a higher education. And I surely didn't have the grades to get a scholarship. And so I think it, there was at some point where I probably recognized the fact that I was going to have to figure it out on my own. And uh, I didn't know what that meant until you know, the world brought David into my life, you know, a year after graduating high school. And uh, so maybe you could say the stars aligned and I kind of, um, you know, I, I put the feelers out there to the universe and that's how David arrived. I'm not sure, but I can't say I was looking for him, but so real estate found me and um, and I just grabbed a hold of it. Yeah. And, you know, real estate is not the only entrepreneurial endeavor you've had. I mean, even as an adult, right? I mean, you, you had a, a, it sounds like sort of a, you know, a few different things that you've, you've kind of tried out in the mortgage industry and, and some of the other, some, some other things too. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, uh, had, had a very large, uh, mortgage company back prior to 2008, uh, for a number of years during the, um, you know, the, the craziness of 2002 to 2008 before everything fell apart in the world. Um, very successful mortgage company. I've also been involved in a few other, uh, businesses. One, uh, which is very far off from real estate, but it was somewhat of a real estate play was a, a the salon business. Um, so, you know, the beauty industry, um, have also had a printing company for a period of time that was, uh, where we, you know, basically created custom clothing for, for teams and charities, you know, cycling teams and charities, and also running teams for like big races, like the New York marathon and Chicago marathon, things like that. So very much, uh, um, far apart from real estate, but have always just had an interest in, Number one, the startup world. I think it's exciting, you know, when, when you have an idea and you can see that idea through fruition and actually make money with that idea. So that was all that's always been exciting to me. Um, real estate, though, it seems like my heart, whenever I try to deviate away from real estate or um, take my focus away, my my heart always pulled me back it's like a magnet and always kind of drug me back to real estate. Like this is where I need to be. This is where. I found the most success, but also have the most fun. Yeah. So let's talk about that real estate career. When, where did you mm -hmm. start? What did you start doing? And, and, you know, how'd you end up with, uh, in mobile homes? Yeah. So, so started buying single family properties in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which is where I grew up and, um, accumulated a number of those, uh, over a period of two years that I was living there. Um, wasn't really happy with where I was living. I didn't enjoy the winters. Um, I, I just, I, I didn't like the gray skies. I didn't like the cold weather. I didn't like having to wear close toe shoes. You know, I, I like wearing flip flops. I like enjoying the, the, the water and the beaches and things like that. And so, um, I made a change and moved to Florida in 2002 when I was uh, 22 years old. And, um, a couple of reasons for that. Uh, number one, I liked the beach. I liked the year round weather. Um, uh, but also the real estate market was on fire. Um, as it was in lots of other parts of the country, I saw a big upswing happening and I wanted to take a part of that roller coaster. I didn't know the roller coaster was going to have another side going down. I was too young and naive to know that. Yeah. Um, but I enjoyed the run and uh, built up quite a, uh, a significant portfolio of single family rentals and uh, multifamily doors. Um, but 2008 buck had a, a major impact, uh, not in a good way, uh, on, on my business and myself. Um, the single family home market down here, as everyone knows, I mean, real estate market in general completely imploded. Um, we were very 
conservative. Um, so we thought as far as leverage was concerned, uh, we, we never really had much more than like a 66 to 68 percent LTV across the board in our portfolio. But um, the single family home space down here in a matter of eight months went from having a lot of equity and having cash flow to literally being negative on a lot of our properties as far as equity was concerned. But not only that, but the the rental market also took a pretty dramatic hit for a number of years here in southwest Florida. Um, at least in the markets that we were in, Buck, um, the reason why that the rental uh, impact was so significant is that there were lots of spec builders. I don't know if you were in the industry back then, but at least here in Southwest Florida, actually all over Florida, if there was vacant land, then there were spec builders building single family homes in droves. I mean, thousands upon thousands of rooftops for people that were not moving here at that point in time. And uh, they continued building them. And so I went through a phase of a lot of these single-family home builders were trying to essentially, you know, cover their their monthly nut with their construction loans, and they started essentially renting out these new homes. And um, we had a mass exodus of occupancy on our single-family home portfolio, and it kind of was the nail in the coffin. You know, we were upside down, and now we had negative cash flow each month where we were writing checks to essentially pay our notes on the debt, and it, it got really ugly really fast. Is the best way to put it. So. The single-family home market came crashing down on our in our portfolio, and uh, what that forced us to somewhat do is uh, sell a number of our multifamily assets in the years following at the complete worst time to sell them. I mean, at the bottom of the market sure. when you know some notes coming due, and uh, <clears throat> we were were capital starved. Uh, we, we needed capital. We we were out of capital, and uh, we had to sell a lot of our assets at again the complete wrong time in the marketplace. So. Well, uh, and then, yeah, it's it's a story you hear a lot, right? Yeah. I mean, right around 2008. I mean, um, for better or for worse, I had just finished residency training in 2008, so I was just broke anyway. So I was just looking around, going, <laughs> "Hey, what's the big deal here, guys? I mean, I don't, I don't own anything." So I was just like, kind of, and then I didn't have any, you know, I didn't have any money in the stock market or anything. So I was kind of looking around, just observing, and uh, and you know. To a Lots certain of great extent. opportunity yeah, at that point in time. So yeah, what really happened is um, I look back and, you know, in hindsight, I wish I would have done things differently. Um, I wish I would have pulled my head out of the sand a lot faster and, and realized that when there's blood in the streets, there's also opportunity. But it's hard to everyone knows that in theory, but it's really hard to take a step back out of the bubble that you're in, of uh, this disaster that's happening around you. It's really hard to take a step back. And, you know, forget all the bad and say, what's the positive side of the situation? Um, I did not do that immediately. It took me a number of years um, to, to, to truly understand, um, number one, what had happened, how to get through it mentally, um, but also that, you know, there, there's a lot of opportunity here that we need to, to capitalize on. And so in you, any event, do you see our the, market now? Do you see our market right now these days? Uh, does it remind you at all of what was happening leading up to 2008? Yeah, you know, I'm getting some deja vu um, of that. You know, the, the the one big thing that's different is that it's not as easy as far on the, on the lending side. So a lot of the competition we had back then um, and a lot of our buyers on our properties that we might be flipping were people that could very easily get home loans that probably shouldn't have been getting those home loans. You know, like 100% uh, stated programs, uh, right. no income verification type programs or very high loan to value loan programs. Um, so that, that's not really happening like today. Like the stripper who owns five houses, right? Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, when, when you're, when you're a waiter or waitress tells you about like the, the couple houses they just bought or flipped, you know, <laughs> right, I mean, like right. 
you got to get concerned, right? And yeah, so yeah, right. That's not happening today, but I, I do see it. There, there is a resurgence of the subprime mortgage. Like, there, there's there's some of the banks that are getting back into it. They're not calling it subprime, and I forget the terminology. I just heard it the other day, um, and I, I can't think of the name. But they're basically coining it with a different phrase, but it's essentially alternative type of loan. So it's coming back. And so, so what do those loans look like that I see happening again? Are and, they like um, no money down type things or I don't think they're there yet. And I don't know. I haven't spent a lot of time researching it, but um, there are alternate. Yeah. I don't think no money down, but just a um, less scrutiny on the, the credit score. So like today in order to get any kind of decent loan, you better have like a 680 credit score, right. Or higher. And um, I believe there's a, and I forget who it was, but there's a, a loan programs now for 580 and above credit scores. So um, I don't know what kind of LTV that is. But in any event, we know there's competition for banks to lend money. And, um, and there's also a, a buyer's market out there for those credit challenge individuals that have not been able to buy that would like to buy. And so someone's got to fulfill that need. And it, I think it's just inevitable that that market will come back, maybe not as heavy because it's a lot more regulated than what it was back then, you know, back in uh, prior to 2000, government regulations um, changed a lot of things back uh, after that point in time. But uh, some of the other, I guess, um, hints that we could be going into some type of, uh, you know, third inning to where there could be a correction is uh, even just properties. I mean, how many people are just up overbidding or, uh, you know, bidding up properties that come onto the market. We just got in a bidding war the other day with a mobile home park and, you know, ended up selling for, you know, 15% higher than what the asking price was. And, you know, I don't know, everyone's chasing yield, right? There's always that next guy willing to pay a little bit more, willing to take a little bit less of a yield than you. And at, at what point in time does that become dangerous if there is a correction, right? At what point in time does that pose a risk to where that borrower is now at a great risk of defaulting, you know, when the market shifts or if that debt's more short term debt, they've got to get a new loan in place in a, in a number of years, you know? So I'm not sure, Buck, I wish I had a crystal ball and I wish everyone had a crystal ball and they could share it with me um, as far as like what the future is going to bring. But um, we know history repeats itself and I think there will be a, a correction at some point. Who knows what is going to be the initial trigger for it, but. So um, what are you doing to prepare for that? You know, I, I can't say that, uh, we're necessarily doing, I mean, we're very, we like, we like to be very liquid. And so, um, we keep a lot of cash on hand. Um, so I wouldn't say that's necessarily in preparation for a downturn, but I will tell you that although I thought I was a conservative investor before, um, one thing that we do nowadays with every, uh, every, uh, purchase that we make, number one, the debt structures that we put in place are very different depending on the property. If it's a big turnaround, it might be a little bit more of a short, short term community bank type of loan or a bridge loan. Um, the more stabilized properties will get agency debt put in place. But the one thing we do do and anything that's not going to be agency type of debt is we put them through our own internal stress test. And so we run different scenarios out of, you know, if it's a five-year term, if we got a five-year uh, balloon, you know, the what ifs. What if the rate goes from five percent to to six and a half, to seven and a half, to eight and a half? Um, what if we can't get a cash out? What if it's just a rate and term, and the rate's three points higher than what it is today? Like, how does that look? How does the scenario play out in the worst case? And like, what does our ceiling look like? Like, what is the worst case to where, like, literally, it 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 tips over and pushes us off the cliff? And so we, we look at it in that scenario and say, can we get comfortable with that worst case scenario based on what we're paying today for it? Can we get comfortable with that, knowing that it might not play out how we plan and, um, and will, will our investors get paid and will there be anything left over for us? Yeah. There's nothing left over for <clears> us. <throat> we're still okay. But can our investors get paid? Right. So, like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes sense. Um, 
let's 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 kind of go into what you're doing now. So how did you get into mobile home parks and why is it was it related to what happened in 2008 at all? Yeah, but but not not directly. So I took a couple a couple years hiatus, uh, started a few other businesses. Uh, the one was a printing company, um, had another events company I started as well. And so I took about a four year, um, you know, three and a half to four year hiatus uh, focusing on my health. Um, fitness and these other businesses not related to real estate. Cause again, I kind of stuck my head in the sand. I didn't want to think about real estate. My credit was shot. I lost my personal residence. I was in a bad situation. Personal bank accounts got garnished, not a lot of fun. Um, <clears throat> and so 2012 rolled around buck. And again, this burning desire of getting back into, into real estate was there. And I knew, I knew I was missing opportunities, right? Like I, I realized by that point, like there's a lot of opportunity out there and I'm just, I'm dropping the ball, missing it. And so I, I spent a good bit of time on this journey of researching how the market had changed, talking to people that were still in the business that had made it through the downturn, um, people that were had gotten in post recession, um, primarily in the multifamily space. I knew that I did not want to buy single family again. I knew that that, that was not going to be part of the plan. I only wanted to buy multifamily. It would allow me to scale a lot faster, and it's just much more efficient to to manage and oversee. And so that was going to be my goal. And so I spent a good bit of time talking to everyone in the industry still. And during that journey, uh, I was introduced to a guy by the name of Randy. Uh, Randy had been in the manufactured housing space for about 30 years on the finance side. Uh, he had retired uh, shortly before I met him and had started buying RV and mobile home park communities here in Florida and was doing quite well. And so I had no intention. I went to lunch with Randy, but had no intention of um, learning about his business. It was just more of a, a networking lunch of, you know, your net worth is your network. So I was like, I'm just meeting everyone I can. And I had a two-hour lunch with Randy, and I left that lunch um, basically uh, giving myself or dedicating myself to 12 months to learning that niche and buying my first community to either prove or disprove what he had um, you know, spelled out to me during that lunch meeting. He piqued my interest in many different ways on why I should consider this niche and why he feels not that it's better than multifamily, but that it's got some unique attributes that a lot of people don't realize, um, and there's an opportunity there. Uh, that might not exist uh, today in the multifamily space and a little bit less competitive as well. So anyway, I so left what, that lunch so what would those, so what yeah, were those lots things? Lots of things, lots of things. Number one is we know we have an affordable housing crisis in this country. So like it, it is the, um, when I look at it from like the scaled down approach or the, the trickle down effect of like affordable housing, you got a class, B class, C class apartment facilities, right? C class are more the blue collar, uh, D class is war zone. Like you don't put your worst enemy in there, uh, even cause you know, like you literally fear for their life in your own at the same time. Um, and, uh, after that, you really step down, which isn't the same quality. Like, uh, you know, our mobile home parks are typically less expensive to live in, even even a low-end D-class apartment facility. But yet, the 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 living quality is that of a C or B-class apartment facility. Sometimes an A-class apartment facility. And so, if you can't afford to live in a mobile home park in this country, you're basically homeless. There's no cheaper place you can live with a family, raise a family. Uh, than in a mobile home community. And it doesn't have to be the equivalent of a D-class apartment facility. So that was the first thing. He kind of explained to me the economics behind that and, and the beautiful part of that niche is that there's really, it's not very hard for anyone in a park to come up with their monthly lot rent because on average it's like $300 a month across the country, right? Anyone can scrounge together and hustle to come up with $300 a month. Another big benefit is it's the only asset class in real estate across the board that has a diminishing supply. And so meaning that there's more mobile home parks that are being torn down or redeveloped every year than are being built. And primarily that's because municipalities, they don't like them for many yeah. different reasons. Number yeah. one, there's a, 
negative stigma attached to the sure. industry. And so yeah. they don't want to be built and for other reasons as well. But so that was a big one, big barrier to entry. Uh, next up was the, the turnover. You know, when someone owns their own home, it's not as easy for them just to get up and pack their bags and put their mattress on the rooftop and move in the middle of the night like they can in an apartment complex. They've got a home. They can't hook it up to their suburban and pull it away. It takes a licensed mover with a special truck to get that thing moved, and it costs a lot of money to move it. And so most, most mobile homes that end up in a community typically never leave. And so when someone's living in it, if they need to leave, they'd sell their home like they would if it was a stick-filled home, sell it to someone else. That person continues to pay lot rent until it's sold to the new person. So you have very little hiccup as far as income's concerned. You don't have those those one- and two-month downtimes for the most part um, on your rent while you're turning over a unit because the person that owns that home is paying it. So that's one big thing, a low turnover. Another big one is uh, the maintenance and upkeep. We don't own the homes for the most part. Um, we do own some homes, but for the most part, we don't. And that means we're not taking care of the roofs, uh, you know, the plumbing, uh, the AC when it goes out, any of that kind of stuff. Our only responsibility as park owners is, is maintaining the infrastructure. And for the most part, that means the, the roads, the water and the sewer lines, and common areas. And a lot of our communities have like clubhouses or offices in them as well. And so that's our, that's our maintenance requirement. That's very low compared to the same size apartment complex where you need, you know, a full-time maintenance person, sometimes more than that. Um, typically, we, actually, we don't have any full-time maintenance people on staff. We've got people we go to, vendors, but we have zero full-time maintenance people on staff. So those are just some of the, yeah, some of the big sure, benefits he sure. told me. Yield is another one. You know, the average returns are typically higher when you compare apples to apples. It's getting a little bit harder today because a lot more Yeah, I was going to ask but, you about that because it's one of these things where, of course, uh, back, I, I'd say, even five years ago, and I think that's, you started here, in a, a, what, six, seven years ago in, in this uh, area? Yeah, go, going on six years, yep. Mm -hmm. And um, back then, it was a, a it, it, you, you really didn't hear much about mobile homes. Uh, and it seems like you're hearing a lot more about it. It seems like there's, there's more, there's more players in the market than there were. Maybe mm -hmm. we're just hearing more about it. Um, tell me about, tell me about some of the contraction that's going on there in terms of cap rates or, or yeah. yield and, you know, supply and demand. Yeah. Um, part of that, uh, part of that creates, uh, that's great for the market. But on the other hand, in terms of, uh, the availability of, of, of things to buy, does that become an increasing uh, problem? Yeah. That's a great question. Um, yes, there's more competition, more buyers coming into our market. There's lots of multifamily guys that are, you know, where they would have snubbed their nose at this asset class maybe a couple of years ago or now opening their eyes up to it because they might not be able to find the yields that they're looking for and the, you know, the markets are investing in in the apartment space. Um, but either way, there's more competition, more larger professional operators get into the space. Private equity firms are getting into the space. Um, but with even that being said, Buck, the beautiful thing about this industry still today, which this will change over time, it's basically, I don't know how much you know about the self-storage industry, but it's basically where the self-storage industry was like 20 years ago. Where Self-storage was very mom and pop. It was only mom and pop until um, public storage, and I can't think of the other big uh, REIT that, that got in at the same time, before the big boys came in and started consolidating and doing roll-ups with the small mom and pops. And so we're very fragmented still. Overall, our industry is incredibly fragmented, and um, it, it won't be that way forever. And so there's still opportunity to buy 
from these mom and pops, these aging owners that a lot of them own them free and clear. They've owned them for 30 or 35 years. A lot of them haven't maximized the value. Um, there's opportunities to buy those uh, on a regular basis. I mean, today we've got six parks in contract. Five of those six are directly from the owners. Uh, we, we're buying directly from the owners. And four of those five are from the original owners that built the parks, like uh-huh. between 30 and 45 years ago. Wow. So. Um, in every situation that we have on our board right now in our pipeline, all six parks that we have in contract, every single one of them, some more than the others, uh, the rents are drastically below, below market, and there's uh, operational efficiencies um, that can be benefited from on our side by getting professional management in there and actually running like a business, not like a hobby or not like a you know a small family-run business, like a mom-and-pop business. So that's where the opportunity is in this space. Uh, and that's also where the opportunity to get, you know, higher than average yields are as well. Uh, it, it, you know, there's a little bit of heavy lifting involved in some of these deals, but it's it's not um, it's it's not drastically um, uh, impossible to, to to achieve really really high double digit yields in the space. So yeah, now is that um, in 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 the context of you also have a fund? It's, that's uh, correct. Sunrise mm-hmm. uh, Sunrise uh, Capital, right? That's and correct. So when you when you're talking about returns, are you talking about if you're buying and owning these things yourself, or even if you're potentially investing in various funds, are you still an opportunity to to get into those double digits uh, uh, with that as well? Yes, yes, absolutely. So we've got a we do have a, a new fund rolling out. We we had a Reg D five hundred six C semi blind fund last year. We uh, ended up acquiring five assets in um, this year. Uh, literally in the next couple of weeks. Still know when the show is going live, but in the next couple of weeks we're rolling out our second semi blind uh, uh, fund. Semi blind because we've already got a number of opportunities uh, teed up to go into that fund. Uh, and that in our fund structure here moving forward. We've got uh, eight, nine, and ten percent pref options available, depending on how much is invested by the limited partner. Um, and then we have a very unique, um, we've got a very unique structure played in to where um, all distributable cash flow will go back towards initial capital contributions of the of the limited partners um, until they're made whole with their initial initial investment. And we've also put in a twelve percent clawback provision. So that in the event we haven't been able to give them a 12% annualized cash on cash return, um, they can claw it back from our GP side until they've realized that 12% on an annual basis. So How, we're very confident in our asset class. Confused on that a little bit. Explain that because you had a you have a pref there too. So what's the 12% all about? Yeah, so that you know between the pref and between the um, uh, the distrib- distributable cash flow. Uh, that they'll reach a, on average, 12% cash on cash return on an annual basis. Over the course so. of how long? Just each year? or Yeah, each year. Okay, That's got correct. It. Got it. Uh-huh. And um, what's the, uh, <clears throat> this is a 506C, so we can talk about it. I'm happy to, you know, kind of explore sure. it a little bit. Um, what's what's the what's the split after the return on capital? And the split after return on capital is 50-50. Okay, got it. And um, so, yeah, so if you're interested in that, you should go to what is it? What's the website on that? You can go to our, our, our company website, which is sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. Perfect. And then we'll put that in the show notes as well. But uh, let's talk a little bit about your podcast and, and what, you know, yeah. uh, you've got two of them. And yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. so it's, it's keeping you busy. I don't know how you're doing two podcasts. Yeah, it's a lot of work. It's a lot uh, of work. So, um, stuff, so. yeah, so... I've been listening to the podcast, Buck, you know, for probably over 10 years now, back before people even knew what a podcast was. Yeah. I, did a, I used to do a lot of driving. And so um, 
I used to listen to podcasts, but unfortunately back then there was only a handful of real estate podcasts and most of them were, you know, talking about fixing and flipping homes. And I mean, it wasn't my business at that point. Like I kind of had already gotten out of that business and it wasn't really of interest to me. And there was no commercial real estate investing podcasts out there, Buck. And that's really what I wanted to hear about. And so I figured, you know, it wasn't out there, so I might as well start it on my own. And that was four and a half years ago. And so uh, essentially, uh, my my one podcast, I interview guys like yourself. Uh, you're in, you're in the multifamily, and uh, you have other commercial uh, investments as well. Um, so I interview guys in the commercial investment space, primarily owners and operators. And we had a lot of uh, very uh, niche assets as well, like car washes and laundromats, and I forget there's assisted oh, yeah. living. There's the whole yeah. slew of them, self storage, things yeah. like that. So that's what that show revolves around. Uh, and then we also have another podcast, which is called the mobile home park investing podcast, which as the name would uh, imply, it's all about mobile home park. Investing. So what is so, that? Is that sort of a how to podcast? Is that a, you know, yeah, it's a little, a little bit of everything. You know, there's, um, I'd say in the first, uh, first year that we were doing it, it was a lot of very granular content about our business model, how we find deals, how we research markets. Um, you know, uh, we had case, did a lot of case studies on, on properties that we bought, how we turned them around, kind of our business plan. Um, and then we started doing interviews with other owner and operators. And so it's, it's a, it's kind of a mixture of all the above. Um, it's a how to, but also a, you know, here's how Henry did it, or here's how Bob did it. You know, other operators out there in the space that might not have the exact same business plan as us. And so there's enough information on there. If someone had an interest in our space that they just wanted to even determine whether or not it might be a good fit for them, go listen to a number of those podcasts. They'll make a quick determination of either I, I can, I like this or this is not for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Hey, one one quick question I forgot to ask. <clears throat> In terms of uh how do how does how does depreciation work in 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 these things uh in these yeah. mobile home parks because if you're I mean obviously you're getting great yield, but I'm curious and I'm sure some of uh my listeners are interested in understanding, you know, uh, typically if we have mobile home parks, we or if we have apartment buildings, we we also do self-storage. Etc. And these all have a sort of a typical, uh, you know, depreciation schedule that's very favorable. What what does that what, look like in mobile home parks? What is self storage? Uh, I know that resident uh, multifamily is twenty seven and a half years. What's what's self storage? Well, it's it, it's 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 longer. But here's the here's the issue though is that you can, um, you know, those things are just a thing full of things that you can take out, right? Like you can deconstruct the entire facility. So, gotcha. so, so what you can do, you can do is, right. You can do accelerate big right. portions of it. Right. Got you it, do it. a cost segregation analysis and you pretty much depreciate it, especially because of the accelerated uh, section 179 now with all that stuff. Yep. Um, you can, you know, you can depreciate like a lot of it. So I'm curious how it works and um, with mobile home parks. Yeah. So with the mobile homes themselves, so I'll start there. So if you end up owning some of the actual trailers inside the park, which isn't the preference, but it's just part of the business. Uh, we do own some trailers. Most of the businesses, you just rent the land and the infrastructure uh, and the uh, the homeowners own their own units. But so the yeah. trailers themselves, just like residential or 27 and a half years, um, it's in a perfect world. We wouldn't own any of the units in the park. The homeowners would own the units and we own the land. They rent the land from us. Um, but we do own some units. And so I need to speak to that a little bit. It's 27 and a half years, pretty straightforward. But the beautiful part about our business is the, the land and the improvements, which is the park itself is over a 15 year depreciation schedule. So, um, very much accelerated in comparison to, um, you know, other residential type of asset classes. So a lot of the income that you get is pretty much, yeah. uh, 
you know, tax, uh, that's minimum correct. tax. That's, that's great. That's great. Yep. Fantastic. Well, listen, uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I, I can just keep talking forever. So, um, Kevin, thanks so much for being on uh, Wealth Formula Podcast today. It sounds like we know where to find you, and uh, and and uh, we'd love to have you have you back again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Buck. It's been a lot of fun. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Kevin Bupp. A couple of things uh, I want to give, uh, I want to mention before we uh, get off here. Uh, one thing is that um, you know I. I know it's kind of a pain to try to get into iTunes uh, and get a five-star review. So what we did is we put this icon on wealthformula.com on the homepage. So if you like what you're hearing, but you've had difficulty navigating iTunes, and believe me, I totally understand it, now is the time that you can s- simply go to wealthformula.com, hit the icon to give me a review, and give me five stars if you think I deserve it. Why? Because it is important for rankings. The show itself is now ranking in the top 10 in the investor category. That's a big deal. And it really helps to continue to keep the quality of the show high. It helps me get leverage, get quality people on the show, etc. And that just makes it better for all of us. So make sure to go and do that. If you haven't subscribed to the show, do that as well, because that also helps us climb up in the iTunes rankings. Now, also, I want to uh, ask you another favor, which is, you know, uh, participate in the show. And the way you can do that is by going to wealthformula.com. And there's a function there called SpeakPipe. And what I'd like you to do is to record your questions and comments, because I think it would be nice if we did more of these Ask Buck shows, because I think it really makes it, you know, uh, a little bit, it, it creates a little bit more of a community feel. It makes, makes me feel like you're getting involved with this show, which, which really just, you know, helps me uh, to get to the core of what the problems and the issues and, you know, the things that you need more information on, et cetera. So make sure again to go to wealthformula.com, click on the speak pipe player and ask questions. Or if you want to just leave some comments, you know, some, some, some things that you'd like to have said on the show. Finally, if you are an accredited investor, and I noticed there's a whole lot of new listeners uh, recently, and you may not know this, but there is an accredited investor group associated with Wealth Formula. And if you go to wealthformula.com, you can join that group. Now, what is an accredited investor again? Let's just remind the new people in the group. An accredited investor is not something that you apply for. It sounds like it, doesn't it? It sounds like you have to be accredited, like you have to go through an application process. No, an accredited investor either is or is not an accredited investor, sort of like being pregnant. And if you are an accredited investor, all it means is that you either make $200,000 per year or $300,000 of filing jointly, or you have a net worth of over a million dollars outside of your personal residence. And if you are that, make sure you join the group so you can be part of a incredible pipeline of opportunities that is heading our way later this year. And with that, I will leave you. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. 
As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.